Welcome to the Wellward Way podcast, where we empower our community by demystifying pain, both physical and emotional, to give you the tools for optimal health. Hi, I'm Dr. Donish Mazdamduce, the Medical Director of Wellward Medical here in Lexington, Kentucky, and I'm here with my co-host, Dr. James Escaloni, physical therapist extraordinaire. (laughs) (laughs) Today we're talking about a very important topic of mental health. So this has been a big issue, especially the past couple years with COVID being this ongoing element. And the headlines have really highlighted how people have been sick and the illness, as really people should pay attention to that. But the underlying theme for a lot of people stuck at home is their mental health, not only for parents who have to deal with the kids being crazy and they don't have that outlet from going to work. My own children, they have video conferences they're losing that ability to have that fun friendship with their friends, understanding the social norms. My my kids were starting to have anxiety issues because they just they're stuck at home all the time. And it made me wonder about how important mental health is for our patients. And that got uh, Dr. Donish and myself talking about this topic because it is really important. And I know this is a big uh, topic that is near and dear to Dr. Donish's heart uh, because he's got an interesting background with this. So I'll let you go into that. Yeah, uh, before I jump into that, as you were talking, I uh, I thought it's important to bring up uh, that we've seen in the past couple of years this dramatic rise in overdoses and deaths um, because of of substance abuse. And that, that to me is a big indicator of how much this problem is mental health driven even though we talk about it as it's as if it's a pain and opioid problem, it's really uh, the intersecting world between physical pain and mental health uh, that we're seeing this this uh, uh, dramatic rise. I I actually when I went into medicine or, or started medical school, I thought I wanted to be a psychiatrist. Uh, my parents had a really interesting background because. Before we immigrated to the U.S., both of them were anesthesiologists. Um, and when we immigrated, my mom was pregnant with my little sister, uh, and uh, so she thought that it would be too difficult for two anesthesiologists to raise a family. So she actually changed fields and went into psychiatry. Uh, it was uh, it was a, a really nice blend because my dad's an anesthesiologist and a pain specialist. My mom was a psychiatrist and anesthesiologist and so when I went into medical school I, I went to Johns Hopkins um, they, they have a phenomenal uh, psychiatric department just some novel uh, really forward-thinking clinicians there I was really drawn to it at first and it wasn't until I, I really fell in love with anesthesiology and the physiology of the body that I shifted and went in that direction but I kind of appeased myself thinking that Anesthesia is really the psychology of surgery, um, because wait, psychology of surgery? <laughs> Aren't you asleep? <laughs> <laughs> Not always. There's a lot of cases that an anesthesiologist is actually doing with the patient awake. Like think about um, women who go into labor, or uh, one of the one of the locations that we rotated through as an anesthesia resident was Hospital Special Surgery in New York, which is this preeminent orthopedic uh, surgical institute and uh, one of the reasons that they do such amazing things there is because the anesthesiologists mostly run their cases under regional anesthesia which is uh, 
my preference too if I was ever to get anesthesia. What is regional anesthesia? It means that instead of being completely knocked out, they just numb that part of the body. Uh, so you're awake looking at your body being opened up? You could be. Uh, That's wild. <laughs> not everybody chooses to go in that direction. <laughs> okay. Most people would rather be a little bit sedated, but it's a whole lot different than being completely knocked out. Um, most people don't remember it unless they want to, and then, you know, that's just weird. <laughs> but either way, I mean, your your patients can be awake, and your role is not just to medicate them, but to actually numb them or anesthetize them while navigating their, their psyche uh, as well. But even, even in surgi- surgical cases when we're going to be putting a patient completely under, you still have that preoperative uh, period where you're, you're dealing with somebody who is literally going into an environment in which somebody's trying to stab them with a knife, and your role is to shepherd them through that in a way that is psychologically and physically safe and uh, comforting. So I thought of myself as not just a master of physiology and figuring out how, to, how do I keep this body alive while I separate the brain from the body. And that's so wild thinking about it that way. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's essentially what anesthesia is, is we figure out how to create a gap between your conscious brain and your body and still do so in a way that the brain has enough functionality to keep the body alive. Um, you, can break the, you can break the nervous system into three parts. There's the conscious brain, there's the regulatory brain, and then there's the peripheral nervous system. And while we think of an anesthesiologist as just the role is for her to just knock somebody out and make them unconscious, you really have to do four things. You have to uh, render them unconscious. You have to render them without pain. You have to reduce their movement. And interestingly enough, even if you were to do all of those things effectively, people can still form a memory of those events, even if they're not conscious. And so you have to render them um, analgesic to or or have them forget uh, the events as well. Uh, So anesthesia really is this kind of middle ground between physical medicine and mental health. Uh, And it's given me a tremendous insight, particularly since we deal with chronic physical pain, the, the touch points with mental health are tremendous. So how is it that when we're dealing with everything with chronic pain, and especially with your experiences since you've seen a lot of this, how is mental um, anguish, mental health, how does that really play a role in people who've had pain that just won't go away? So it's interesting because um, there's a lot of research that looks at where does brain take place in the brain, sorry, where does pain take place in the brain using functional MRIs, meaning these are highly, highly sophisticated MRI machines that can actually look at the metabolic processes of the brain. And uh, what's fascinating is that the parts of the brain that light up with physical pain are exactly the same parts of the brain that light up with emotional pain. And when you dig even deeper, the way that our brain filters or processes pain signals coming in is heavily reliant on the same chemicals and neurotransmitters that the body uses to sustain mood and to uplift you or, or give you that sense of 
reward and vitality when you do something well. So whether you're in physical pain or whether you're in emotional pain, your brain is processing those signals in a very similar manner. And moreover, it's, it's allowing you to cope with the, those adverse stimuli or those adverse events with the same chemical soup that, uh, with, with the same chemical resources. I always tell, tell patients that when you're dealing with physical pain, your brain is working overtime to try to uh, minimize those signal uh, transmissions to the conscious brain. Uh, and it's doing so with a chemical pool of resources, so like a gas tank of resources, which are the same gas tank of resources that are used when you deal with emotional anguish or emotional upheaval. So if you've got one system working overtime and drawing fuel from this fuel tank, it can run it empty and then the other side of the fence is also going to struggle for resources and they start to compete. That's why we see such an overlap between physical pain or chronic pain and mental health issues. So that's how if somebody has had chronic pain, they're more likely to have things like depression or anxiety or be more susceptible to stressful situations and react in a not maybe the best way re react in anger because they don't have the resources to be able to cope in like they normally would yeah absolutely i mean if you think about let's pretend like you i was i was, was to suck out your conscious mind and we're no different than every other animal that roams this earth uh now if i put a uh uh, an ice pick in your shoulder that's going to that's going to trigger a fight or flight response like you're going to go into that state of like I either need to tear people apart <laughs> or I need to run the heck out of here mm. and um, if you're in a chronic pain state it's as if somebody is attacking you every single moment of your your conscious life so your brain is going to react in that same kind of fight or flight response. It's going to get to a point where it's on edge. It's looking for routes of escape. It's looking for um, a way to alleviate this pain and get you to safety. Even, even in your outside of your conscious mind, when we talk about that regulatory part of the brain, it's looking for a way to uh, get back to baseline. And if it can't, if that chronic pain issue is not going away, the brain thinks it's being attacked on a regular basis. And that's going to eventually deplete your resources and get you to that point where the, the gas tank runs empty and both your physical and emotional uh, uh, pain uh, uh, coping mechanisms are going to start to struggle. Okay. So... Is this uh, this information right here, th this sounds like it's pretty deep and uh, something that a lot of physicians should know. Um, what do you think? Is this something that's really widely known? You know, it's, it's funny because when, when I think about this topic, it really goes to the humanism of medicine, and it's not an easy topic to teach students. I remember as a, a first-year medical student, I had a, a preceptor. We were... We What's were, a preceptor? It's a... A physician who is your your mentor oh, okay yeah. and um, I was we, we were um, put into small groups of four individuals four medical students 
and we went with this this preceptor into the hospital to interview or interact with some of his patients and uh, the first day on uh, clinical exposure my uh, my preceptor introduced me to a patient of his who he'd known for years and years and years she was a lovely lovely person very patient very tolerant of uh, inept medical students coming in and, <laughs> and poking and prodding on her um, and she had a really difficult condition it's an autoimmune condition that that where all your connective tissue starts to go really hard and brittle so they kind of start to get into this locked in state where they can't really move their limbs anymore um, and uh, and she was talking to me about it and I don't remember what the tenor of the conversation was but she expressed she expressed herself in a way that conveyed she was fearful of dying and um, you know I'm 22 years old I have no concept of death or dying or what it means to have that fear and and I, I very flippantly said uh, well, you know, we all die at some point. And oh <laughs> no, this is the worst thing I could say. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I now know in retrospect why it was such an awful thing to say because I can break it down into like different bits and pieces of it. But it was essentially marginalizing what she's saying. She's not saying telling me that she's actually afraid of dying in the hospital at that moment. She's not telling me she's ignorant that we all die or we all have a mortality so you didn't give her a light bulb moment like oh we all die i'm okay now (laughs) (laughs) it wasn't a brilliant thought that i was giving her um i was i was just so nervous to be talking to a patient and i was so focused on my own emotional state that i was not receptive to her emotional state Ah. and and i later started to understand that how we perceive the world, how we interact with the world really takes place on two planes. There's the plane of concepts and ideas and tangible things, what I call things of currency, because I can buy a thought, I can buy an idea, I can buy a blanket or a chair or a service. These are things that I can have in exchange with someone and they're objective, they're tangible. You can touch and feel it uh, or you can conceive it. And then there's the second plane, which is our plane of emotions, our sentiments, our intentions, our feelings. These are not things that you can buy. You can't buy love. You can't buy happiness. You can't buy someone's sorrow away. They're, they're, they're just there. They're experiences that we all go through um, and we all feel, uh, but we have far less control over it than we think. And in that conversation, I was so focused on that physical plane, on that tangible plane, that I was completely missing the humanism of the moment. What she's really expressing to me is on that emotional level. That's where I believe mental health and medicine really converge, is we're not here to just extend people's lives. We're here to enhance the quality of their lives. We're here to engage with them on an emotional level um, and and to feel what they feel to share in the burden of their disease not just to modulate or modify the existence of that disease it's to hand uh, to hold their hand and empathize with them as they're going through that life experience of whatever it is that they're dealing with on a physical level 
So this is some really deep stuff that I'm appreciating to hear you say. Now, the thing that I need to know is how is it that if the average person's going to their physician and they've got some clearly mental health issues, why isn't it addressed in the manner that you're just talking about with that depth and clarity? I think it, it, it's for a lot of reasons that we're moving away from that in healthcare and we're compartmentalizing it such that your, your physician is not the one that's allowed to provide you the mental health resources or the, the humanism of medicine because the timing of everything is begotten so, has gotten so tight. Like, we're, you know, when I, when I was in medical school in clinic, we would have maybe a dozen patients that we would see and we would have sufficient time with them to really sit down and understand not just what their what their medical issues are, but what their experiences are going through uh, going through that disease process, and that's phenomenal for a medical student. But when I got to clinical practice, it was a completely different world, uh, where you know the the restrictions around insurance, the logistics around our, our documentation and the electronic medical record, and frankly the the changes in reimbursement where office visits get cut every year like we get a reduction in in the the revenue that can be generated it becomes this financial pressure to see more and do more and treat more um, the way that insurances are set up it 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 rewards invasiveness rather than uh, human connection so the pressure in medicine over the course of the past several decades has been increasing in volume, increasing in, in throughput, because we have a larger population, more sick individuals, and fewer resources to treat those with. So uh, it, where, where things have been cut have been that humanism of medicine, the mental health aspect, the human experience of what it means to deal with disease. So with the way that things are right now, people really need to figure out a way that they can have their mental health addressed by somebody with some humanistic qualities like you've just described, but how are they going to find somebody in the current healthcare state that can actually address their needs? Well, that's, that's really what one of our mainstays here at Wellward is, is we want to be the living laboratory to rethink how medicine or how healthcare is delivered because we take such a disease-focused approach where we're just trying to uh, unburden people with disease that we don't realize that's only taking place on that tangible plane, that the humanism of medicine is where we can really unburden a lot of the anguish that happens with disease processes. So we're looking at ways that we can really integrate the mental health with the daily physical um, components of medicine uh, and and integrate the emotional experience with what we do on a day-to-day basis. Emotions emotions are like toddlers. If we try if we ignore them, they just make more noise. And really a big part of what we do is to try to label or identify what it what emotional experience that patient is going through because the moment you bring it to the surface and you label it you start a clock on its existence, that all emotions have a life cycle. They all expire. It just might take some time. And they expire more quickly or they transition more quickly 
when we can label them and bring them to the surface. That is really deep. I like hearing this. I love just talking to you. You got all sorts of smart things you say. (laughs) (laughs) Well, here's a good question, though. How is it that that Walward's doing some very interesting things for people who just have this mental health complaints, problems that just seems to be revolutionary? So what's What's really interesting for me, how a lot of this has evolved, was when we started to use ketamine, which is a, an, an anesthetic that creates a firewall between the thinking brain, the regulatory brain, and the uh, body. Um, because it creates this strange space of disconnectedness among those elements, uh, it's really evolved this mindset, the way that I approach these Uh, emotional issues and trying to label them, identify them, and helping people identify what the core of who their identity is, who they they identify with. In doing so, um, certain ideas and principles have evolved. And um, I think of ketamine as, as a medication that helps to give a psychological deep dive. We have patients who say it's like 20 years of therapy all at once. So it's like a, a medically supervised psychedelic event, right? It's it's like a medically supervised psychedelic that is guiding therapy. So it's not it's not like what people talk about. Um, You're not going to a fish show and just kind of like <laughs> falling away into the crowd. No, no, it could feel that way for a moment, but it's it has a lot more guidance and a lot more direction to it. That's pretty awesome. I think we're going to have to do an episode on just that ketamine. I know a lot of people will be interested. Definitely. All right. So that's all our time for today. Yeah. And if you find this helpful, please make comments uh, uh, on our website, on our YouTube page, on our Facebook page, anywhere that that we've got a social media outlet. We'd love to hear from you. All right. Um, Well, I'm Dr. Escaloni. And I'm Dr. Donish. And we'll talk to you later. Until next time. Bye-bye.